Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Living free. Welcome to the Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, 855kHz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. Hi, I'm Bill, and I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits people-powered radio. I'd like to pay my respects to the elders past and present and to acknowledge that this land was stolen, that sovereignty was never ceded. Each week on the Living Free Show... We showcase one of the many programs that assist in recovery from drugs, alcohol, gambling and food addictions. Our guests share their recovery story and highlight that shared experience saves lives. My guest today is a compulsive gambler who's recovering with the help of Gamblers Anonymous. I'd like to welcome Jared to the show. Hi, Jared. Hi, Bill. Jared, we usually start at the beginning so everyone listening can better understand how you became addicted to gambling. Uh, so would you like to share some of your early life growing up and how you became aware of gambling? Absolutely. At the age of 14, I was introduced to horse gambling by, or horse racing, I should say, by a close friend I went to school with and, and spent a lot of, lot of time with. I'd call him my best friend growing up. And he had an uncle who trained horses. So um, this was in 1983 and I was 14 at a time where there was no mobile phones and no internet. So the, the three ways to place a bet, I suppose, in those days in 1983 were you had to actually physically do it and you had to look 18. So you had to walk into a TAB, you had to place it over to the counter. And so we couldn't do this. So the, the option for us was to use the my friend's parent to place bets on a phone account for us and at the races. So we'd attend the races every Saturday and the parent would place the bets for us. They'd be very small amounts and you would call it hobby gambling and very, very small amounts of money, and once a week. And that went on for, you know, a while. Yeah. So do you want to talk a bit more about your, your family, you know, what sort of family you grew up in and whether there was any gambling in your family? Yeah, so I'm one of seven children, and my parents never gambled, not even once a year. They, they never gambled at all. Um, my older brother enjoyed a game of cards with his friends, which I would join in with regularly, and we would play for very, very small amounts of money. And that happened probably from about the age of 12 onwards. Um, we would play once every two or three months only. So that was very rare, yeah. So what about your school life and friendships? Um, we were good at school. Did you like school? Yeah, I, did, I really did like school. So through primary school, I was an A and B grade student and, and had no issues with, with schoolwork at all. I was, I was actually um, uh, found it quite easy. And then when I got to secondary school and particularly year eight onwards when, when the gambling started, coincidentally, that's when I started getting distracted, not doing homework and particularly on the weekends, going to the races and, and playing sport and doing things I just didn't find time for homework. And, and that was probably the one thing that I can recall that the teachers always were telling my parents about. Why isn't he doing any work at home? He just stopped doing it. Yeah. <laughs> Not surprising. Yes. So what about friendships then? Did you have a lot of friends at school? Yeah, I did. I was, I describe myself as being able to be friendly with everyone and we were in a school where it was 70 to 80% ethnic variety and particularly the, the Greek and Italian kids I enjoyed spending time with. I loved their, their general way that they did things and, and loved mixing with them, never had any confrontations with them, whereas some of the other kids would have what you call dust-ups with them regularly. Um, but I was really happy with their everything about them and, and my general group of friends whom I played sport with and spent all my time with, I'd describe myself as, as an easygoing individual who was non-confrontational, so they just enjoyed my company. That sounds, sounds good. 
What about the rest of your family? Did any of your family uh, get involved in, in gambling when you were young? So only my older brother, who was one year older than me, he was a an unprofessional bookmaker at school with, with a couple of his friends, and they would run... Um, run books on things like golf and tennis and football and cricket and, and get, get all their mates betting on them. Right. So it'd be, it'd be small amounts of money, but they would be happy to run any major event, be it a golf tournament or something similar, maybe a Melbourne Cup horse race or something like that. And they, they'd hold, you know, a few hundred dollars on each event between the three of them. And then they just split the winnings. Right. So he found that a, a quite a good, uh, you know, unofficial job if you like for a, for a couple of years there and 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 I I didn't find that was an influence on me at all I just found it an interesting way to make money but not something that I tried to imitate or get involved with no I guess it's a different way of taking risk isn't it yeah yeah being yeah, a bookie yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 my dad's brother was an SP bookie uh, back in the day yeah <laughs> uh, um, do you want to tell us a bit more about um, I guess how you were attracted to gambling? What what was it that that sort of made you think this is an interesting thing to do rather than you know your sport and other things? Yeah, well, it was a, it was a slow burn at the start because because we were betting betting such small amounts of money, and I'm talking one and two dollars at a time. You could barely win ten dollars at a time. So the the money wasn't the initial attraction until I realised, I reckon two years into the gambling, call it age. 16, I realized if you just increase that bet by 50 or percent or more, you could actually win a lot more money. And and this got my mind ticking over that instead of just enjoying the gambling at a small number, it got me thinking, how much can I win? And that that actually changed everything. Right. Yeah. So at, at that point, you know, to increase your, your bets, you'd have to, again, have support of your friend's father so was he happy to happy to do that yeah so once we got to about 16 17 our oldest friend in the group who was who was a few months older than us and taller and 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 did look could have almost passed for 18 almost he would place most of the bets for us from that point on uh-huh. so the parent wasn't involved at all so he became our number one go-to and every now and then I would call it maybe one out of 20 attempts, he would get knocked back. Yep. But you know, 90% of the time, he'd get the bet on no no trouble at all. So it didn't matter where it was, TAB, racetrack, bookmaker, they just take the bets yep. without asking for ID. Yep. Yeah, it's underage drinking and underage gambling is a fairly prevalent in real terms. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I agree. Yeah. You're, you're obviously gambling with, with a group of friends this, at this point. Yeah. Was there a sort of a, a group encouragement to gamble? Yeah, there was. Was anybody in the group who didn't gamble? No, there wasn't. So there'd be four of us, and the four of us spent, I, I would say, 95% of the time the four of us were at the track together, all four, every single Saturday, the same four. And, and we would get together on Friday night. We'd play cards for about three hours looking through the form guide at the same time. Yeah, and then on the Saturday we we take those ideas to the racetrack and we bet for for five hours at the track. Right, and generally generally we we bet on the same horses a lot of the time. I'd say more than fifty percent of the time, and the other fifty percent you'd choose one that maybe only one or two of the other guys would be agreed agreed with, and but generally it would be a a group or or a dual decision on what you were betting on. So you mentioned a form guide. So, um, yeah, my dad was a bit of a bit of a gambler, like the form guide, but uh, he wasn't wasn't a compulsive gambler, but um, he had other problems. So do you want to talk us through what knowing or thinking you know a lot about horses influences your betting? Yeah, it really does. It, it, the, the thought process was I believe that I can almost outdo my friends at times and pick horses that they they can't therefore this will give my ego a bit of a boost because I'll be I'll be the one picking the winner and everyone else will be patting me on the back and and helping that ego to um, you know enjoy the win so was that successful that was at times 
I would think it was a minimal amount of time, but when it happened, it was such a, a, a big buzz that it, it seemed like it would happen more often than not. But I, I know now, upon reflection, that it rarely happened. Yeah, it's funny how you reinforce that one event, isn't it? Yeah. You do. No doubt about that. <sighs> yeah. So did your gambling ever bring you in conflict with your friends at this point? Fortunately not, no. I never borrowed money from them through, the, through those teenage years. I can't remember borrowing money from anyone at any point during those years. I would get a source of income from part-time work, whether it was delivering newspapers, pamphlets, things, things, things of that nature, just real, real small part-time jobs that just gave me enough money for what we needed to do. And, and the remainder, I would get a very small amount of money from my parents, as much as you would get to go out on a weekend to do something else, you know. So that was more than enough pocket money to do what we needed to do. And, and it was actually beneficial because it meant that we, we only bet on, on probably between six and ten races in a whole five-hour period. Right, okay. Because that's all the money we had. Yeah, <laughs> that's good. Good planning, yes. Yeah. So did any you or any of your group ever completely run out of money at the races? Yes, yes. I would say we regularly ran out of money by about 4 o'clock, and, and it was usually about a 5 o'clock finish. So one of us would, would generally run out or, or virtually have nothing left by 4 o'clock almost every Saturday. Yeah. But they might have only started with 15 or $20. So, yeah, you know. It was it was not hard to lose that amount of money in four hours. Yep, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. So, did you all sort of gamble about the same amount? Yeah, we did. We did. It was it was quite uh, interesting. So we'd we'd actually write the amounts in the back of the race book, and we'd write the horse's name and the amount, and then the dividend that you either collected or or just just a zero next to it. Yeah. And then you'd actually compare notes and say, "This is how I'm going. How are you going?" And it'd be you'd be accountable for everything, you know. So that that was, you know, if you want to call that a positive about um, yeah, how a teenager should just calmly put a bet on and, and compare notes. It actually was a, a way to to keep it under control and 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 keep it rather measured, if you want to call it that. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So when did it start to become a problem for you? So I would say the the trigger for me was when I was 19, I'd been driving my car for about six months and the same four friends, or three of them and myself were in the car and one extra person. So five of us were driving home at 3M. I was driving the car and an altercation happened in the car where the, the passenger got up on his seat, turned around to the, the back of the seat and lost his balance. He landed on top of me and the car ended up on, on its roof after it hit a pole. So three of the five occupants were seriously injured, including myself. We were all okay as far as life-threatening injuries go. It was more broken bones and, and knocks to the head and, and things like that. So that gave me a feeling that I was solely responsible. I felt like all eyes were on me for some years and people treated me differently. So I went from being a carefree individual who was liked by everyone to feeling like, you know what, people aren't going to give me the time of day now. This is this is it for me. I'm in big trouble. Yeah. Yep. I've lost their trust. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Well, so we might take a short break there. Yep. Our first song is called Darkness by Rustin, and it's courtesy of Australian Music Radio Airplay Project.
Wildlife Victoria is a non-profit wildlife emergency response service dedicated to helping wildlife in need across Victoria. Our volunteers rescue and rehabilitate sick, injured and orphaned wildlife. If you see wildlife that may need our help, on the road, in your backyard or in the bush, please contact us immediately on 84007300. That's 84007300. To donate or to become a volunteer, visit wildlifevictoria.org.au. A 3CR supporter. So, here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Ijuoma Umebinyo, Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong and how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Jan. Welcome back. Uh, this is The Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. If you'd like to listen to one of our many podcasts, uh, you can find them on your preferred podcast platform or just Google 3CR Living Free and check out our website. You can also contact us via phone, email or Twitter. Today I'm talking with Jerry and we're talking about compulsive gambling and his recovery through Gamblers Anonymous. So Jerry, before the break, we talked about the fact that you're in a, a car accident and that you felt everybody thought that it was it was your fault and you started to get a bit isolated. So do you want to talk about, you know, sort of, I guess, immediately after the accident, what was the progression of, of isolation for you and how did that make you feel? Sure. So I continued to mix with the same people and the same group of friends for some years, trying to, I guess, use time to heal the wounds and, and, and move on. But it just, if anything, it was getting worse as time went on. I, I felt nothing was changing and that was making me feel uh, really, really isolated. I, I, I think I, I had a feeling that I had to get out. I had to get out of this group and I had to move on. So what I did was I changed cricket clubs and I went to a completely different area and found a new group of people to mix with, and I completely cut off everyone from the old group, like completely. And that made me feel a lot better initially, but I also had a feeling of guilt that I'd, I'd just run away from my problems and, and not address them, you know what I mean? So at age 22, I was making a fresh start, and I think when you put this in terms of the gambling, what I'd actually started thinking about was how can I subconsciously, the gambler, I was using the gambling to forget about my problems. Yeah. I know that when I gambled and gambled on my own and just focused totally on the gambling for four or five hours at a time, I didn't think about anything else. And that was good. That was a good day. I felt that was a good day. Yeah. Yeah. So what were you doing at this point? Were you, uh, were you working there? Yeah, so I, I started an apprenticeship at age 17. So I was just finishing the apprenticeship by about the age of 21, turning 22. And because the accident happened right in the middle of that apprenticeship, and one of the guys I worked with was directly involved with one of the families, that derailed the apprenticeship as well. So... After three and a half years, I walked away from that and didn't finish it, which was um, which was typical of, of you know me not being able to focus on the one thing for long enough at that time. And the money I'd received from the apprenticeship week to week, I'd been using to gamble from the from the age of nineteen onwards, from the car accident onwards. I'd been using that money every week and you, pretty much using a hundred percent of my wage to gamble with. So what we're gambling on now? Just still horses. 
Yeah, still horses. So I was, I was going to the, the track once a week and I was gambling. There was no Sunday racing at this point. So I was gambling on two different weekdays generally, usually the, the, the Wednesday and maybe a Thursday. But generally on a Saturday, whatever money I had left was gone by Saturday night each week. Yeah. So do you want to talk about what that's like, losing all your money gambling and then having nothing for the rest of the week? Yeah, yeah. It was it was a, an empty feeling and one that you didn't want anyone to know about. Uh, certainly didn't let my parents know what was going on. Um, I would spend money on other things, but only through absolute necessity. So when I was paying off my car, that was, you know, a little bit of money each month. Um, often I'd get to the end of the month and the car payment would be due and I'd have to overdraw my credit card because I didn't have my wage. And then I'd have to pay back my credit card in 30 days and, and the cycle would just go round and round and round. So I was just continuously in a small amount of debt, I would call it, but nonetheless it was debt. And it was, you know, at a young age when it was completely unnecessary, it, it did give me a feeling of, of not achieving anything, even though I'd been working for four or five years. Yeah. So what about relationships at this point? Were you social or not? Yeah, I was still social. I'd still put on a, a brave face and socially I'd be mixing with my new group of friends at the new cricket club. And to them, if, if you ask them today what sort of person I was, they would say he was a very social person because what they saw was completely different to what I actually was. Yeah. So I was very good at hiding what was going on in the background. In fact, if you want a degree in acting a different way, I would take that Academy Award, no, no question about it. Yeah. So do you uh, sort of go back a bit. To have an active addiction or a compulsion, you, you really have to be a pretty good liar. Yeah. Because you have to be able to tell people, different people, different things yeah. because you've just got to hose the situation down or yeah. <laughs> get yourself out of a situation. So do you want to sort of think about how that developed? Yeah. Because I, I was talking to somebody else the other week that said they sort of became a bit dishonest because their mum used to say she knew what they were doing, that people in the community would, would notice what they, what he's, what you're doing and, and tell her. And so he started to become a bit more clandestine and that sort of set him up for not telling the truth all the time. Yeah. So did, what, what sort of path did you take? I would say... I found lying quite easy. I didn't. I didn't have any issue with just blatantly lying to anyone, and I found that was easier, far easier than telling the truth. Mm. That's why I didn't mind doing it. I think, yeah. It, it comes with a bit of an overhead though, because you've got to keep yeah. all that in your head. Mm. Who, who you told what, and yeah, to keep yeah. it running. Yeah. And I guess being a gambler anyway, you've got you're living two lives, and so it's this issue of which one you reveal to whom. Yeah. 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 So that takes its toll on people. Were you a bit exhausted from, or was that part of the buzz? I didn't find the lying uh, took a toll on me at all. I found I found it just a normal way of thinking. Yeah. So I would say the toll it took on um, my parents was the number one. They knew something was going on and they knew because I would ask them for money when I shouldn't. Yep. And, and it was ridiculous amounts of money. It was like, can I have 50 or $100 for this? When, when really, mate, you've been working for so long, why would you need money? You know, so they knew. They were very compassionate and, and they would help me without um, going into uh, third-degree questioning of, what have you been doing for the last X amount of time? So if anything, they were too compassionate. If I learned a lesson from that, I would have clamped down fairly early on. And, you know, I think they realised that as a teenager, it was fine. It wasn't an issue. And they were probably hopeful that the, it wasn't an issue into my 20s until I left home at 24. And then they had no control over anything I did, obviously, after that point. Yeah. Yeah, you, know, you said you didn't finish your apprenticeship. So what, what were you doing for work and uh, was work able to um, meet most of your needs? Yeah, so from the age of 21, I thought I'll become a professional gambler for the next year or so, which is what I tried to do. The only source of income was Centrelink 
and within, usually within three days, I would say, sometimes less, the Centrelink money was gone. And for the next 11 or 12 days till the next payment came through, I had zero dollars to my name and would generally just use my credit card or whatever to, to get by. And after 12 months of this cycle, I realized I'm in that much debt and the only way I'm going to get enough money that I want to gamble with is to get a proper job, which is what I did. And I started working for a local tree lopping company and I did that for the next three years and, and earned some really good money, um, which of course became, you know, compounded the problem because then I had more money to gamble with. Yeah. Hmm. Ironically. Yeah. So um, do you want to talk about chasing your losses? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a big one. Yeah. So what, what, what was the strategy with chasing your losses? Yeah, so I would often have bet regret where, where I feel like I could have won X amount on a given day, didn't. And even if I won, I felt like I could have won more. So if, if the profit was X amount, I felt like I could have doubled or tripled that if I'd taken more of a, a risk. Yeah. I, I always have bet regret that I could win more money, win, lose or draw. So that would give you a feeling that the next time you gambled, the next day or the, or the next session, you would say to yourself, okay, um, I won't make that mistake again. I'll put more money down. I'll do it differently. And then I'll win the amount that I feel like I should have. So you're always thinking how much more can I get in my pocket? And even if you win or lose, it, it doesn't matter. It's just, how can I get more? It's just just a, a one-track thought and it, it's irrational and, you know, it, it doesn't give you the opportunity to, to make a measured bet at all. It just gives you the opportunity to go harder and harder and harder. So what point do you think you lost, I guess, rationality with your gambling? I would say I started gambling completely over the top as soon as I got that job as a tree lopper. Right. So that was at the age of 22. Right. So having freedom and money. Yeah. Did your work know that you had a problem? No. No, they had no idea that I gambled at all. Mm. Not a single one of them. So there was three that I worked with, the the manager and two two guys who worked with me on a daily basis, and they had no idea. So I, I didn't gamble at work. I didn't ask them to pull over and go to a TAB during work hours. We were always going from job to job to job. So there was no opportunity there, which was good. But after work, you know, we would finish by four o'clock and I'd have a good couple of hours to get to any local TAB on the way home from work and give that a good touch up. So how's your health, given that you had not a lot of money and yeah. were you looking after yourself? Yeah, I was. I was actually, particularly through that three-year period of tree lopping and playing sport, and, and I was probably the fittest I've ever been in my life yeah. physically. That kind of helped me mentally to, to keep it together, I think. Yeah. And... I was, I was very proud of the condition I was in because I could do the work they needed to me do easily yep. and it was serious physical labour. It was a workout for yep. seven or eight hours every day. Right? Yep. Um, the manager had told me a lot of guys couldn't keep up with this sort of work. Well, I was very egotistical, so I thought that will help my ego. If I can prove to this guy that I can do this job and do it well, my ego is going to get another huge boost, so that'll be great for me. And, and that's why I single-mindedly wanted to do the job well for him and show him that I could do it. And that's why I stuck with it for three years. It was it was really enjoyable for that time, yeah. Yeah. So when did your gambling start to become a problem to you? I would say in my mid-20s, I had no control, yeah. no control. In my early 20s, I had a minimal amount of control. Um, but in my, by, my, by the age of 25, I'd say I had no control over it at all. It was controlling me. Yeah. Yeah. So when did you, or what, what prompted you to, to take action? So I was happy with that lifestyle. I didn't think that was an issue. And I thought I'm bulletproof so I can get by no matter what happens with money or with anything else. I'll just make more money and, and, and work it out. Okay. So I thought... I can solve my own problems. Then I got to the age of 30 
and I was in that much debt and had that many things in the background that I wasn't happy with. I was working a job I didn't enjoy. My lease was up at a house I'd lived in for two years with a couple of mates and it was getting to Christmas time and I thought to myself, I've got to get out of here. So I actually made a decision to leave the country and go overseas for six months because I thought that would solve everything. And, and of course, um, that, didn't, that didn't help anything at all, but it, it did help me to get away from the bubble of working, gambling and everything here in Melbourne. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's very, very typical of people doing a geographical hobby, having a change of situational yeah. <laughs> solve yeah. everything. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Well, listen, we might take another short break there. Our second song is called Sunset Over Ronsley Park, and it's by John Oakes, again, courtesy of Australian Music Radio Airplay Project. Since the break of day Road ahead It's showing us the way We gotta get Away from the city Tonight Up through Peterborough And Haruru I see some sheep Or some kangaroo We gotta get to Rosely Park tonight The sunset on the bluff, it will be great tonight And all the stars, they will be shining bright Eagle waiting for us at the gate Come on in folks, the atmosphere's great The spirit of the land, it is all around Black raven standing on the fence Pink alas, they're not making any sense We're gonna have a good time at Ronsley Park The sunset on the bluff, it will be great tonight And all the stars, they will be shining bright to create safe spaces or become an employer of choice. 
for LGBTIQA plus communities in Melbourne's North. Pride in the North is proud to present their inaugural summit, Beyond the Rainbow Lanyard, taking place on the 3rd of November in South Morang. Hear from diverse voices and help create change to improve the health and well-being of LGBTIQA plus communities across Melbourne's northern region, from Mitchell Shire to Hume, Whittlesea and Banyal local government areas. For more information and registration, go to www.pracc.com.au forward slash tickets. Pride in the North is a 3CR support. I want, I want to What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. Tune in to Done By Law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives. Done By Law, 6pm Tuesdays. Welcome back. This is the Living Free Show on 3CR Digital Radio, live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. And we're talking with Jared about compulsive gambling and his recovery through Gamblers Anonymous. So, Jared, before the break, uh, you mentioned your, you know, sort of early, early 30s and things were starting to get, I guess, a bit unenjoyable. Yes. And so you sort of sought to do a bit of a geographical by going overseas. So do you want to talk about what it was like trying to avoid the problem? Yeah, so it was it was pretty much jumping on a plane and getting as far away as possible from everything and then trying to forget, trying to forget about everything I'd done. And I didn't know where that would take me, but I, I thought something might change. So when I got to Europe and, and I spent six months in, in Scotland working and, and living with my sister, it was almost like a... Uh, breath of fresh air. I, I managed to clear my head to a certain extent, but then about three months went by, about halfway through the trip, and I actually started gambling on English horse racing. And I realised then that I was, you know, I was going to struggle with this. So that went on for the last three months of my holiday till I had no money left and was forced to come back to Australia. And you know, as soon as I got back to Melbourne, the cycle continued. Where I, I basically picked up where I left off before, I, before the six months early. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a progressive progressive thing, isn't it? Like yeah, yeah. Like all, uh, I guess, um, compulsions or addictions that you you don't start from scratch. You start from where you left off. And yeah. yeah, absolutely. So, how did that impact your life then, going back to gambling in in serious terms after having a bit of a break? Yeah, it was uh, it was not ideal, and and obviously I put myself back to where I'd started from, I would mix with my group of friends and, and try and put on a brave face and they'd, you know, they'd think, you know, it's great that he's back and, and things like that. And then I'd live my my alternate life where I'd still be gambling and doing all that. And, and this went on for the next couple of years till I met my current partner. And she, up until this point, I'd had multiple failed relationships because I tried to distance myself from every partner I'd got near because they were interfering with my gambling, basically, my gambling yeah. life. So I tried to do the same with her, and, and I almost got away. And then something triggered in my mind that she was a very special individual, and I, I, I can't put my finger on exactly why I wanted to, to stay with this particular partner, but at, uh, I just realised she was very special at some point. Yeah. So what sort of influence did that have on your life? So... We had a tremendous bond right from day one because she was happy with my gambling because she thought it was just a hobby and I pretended that it was. So I lied to her every day. And this gave me a feeling of contentment that I could stay with her as long as I needed to or or wanted to. And then we had a child born 18 months after this and that was our first child of four. And this was 
the first time in my life where I was forced to seriously contemplate the future. Um, I'm going to be a father. What does this mean? How will this affect the gambling? You know, these questions were answered emphatically over the next couple of years when I continued gambling whenever possible. So what caused you to stop? So my partner was somewhat aware of the gambling. However, she only knew about the wins and not, not the losses. So she had, she had no real idea of how it was controlling me. So after some years together, she finally became aware that she, she'd sensed this for some time, but she wasn't quite sure. Then she cornered me and discovered what was going on, forced me to, to inform her that I was excessively and compulsively gambling and had been doing so since we met 10 years ago. So this was 10 years in. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's quite a uh, that's a long time, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah. And it really rocked her. She as she realised I've been lying to her for all this time. I believe that was the end of our relationship at that time. Yeah. She she displayed compassion and and tried to seek help for me. So I agreed to counselling. Um, I called the Gamblers Help Hotline, booked in some counselling sessions, which ran for one hour a week at an office with a counsellor for about the next 12 months. Yep. Unfortunately, the counselling didn't stop my thoughts about gambling, which continued every day. Mm. I wanted to gamble every day through that 12-month period, but I didn't. My gambling had ceased temporarily, but as soon as I elected to stop the counselling, claiming I was feeling fine and my, my head was clear, I convinced my partner of this. Uh, my gambling recommenced shortly after that time. And it at about the same level as you stopped? The same level. Yeah. If not worse. I call it worse. Yeah. Okay. So this was inevitably discovered by my partner after a fairly short period of time and another confrontation followed. She was beginning to understand that she may never be able to stop my gambling and this feeling of helplessness was extremely difficult for her to endure at that time. I virtually conceded there was no hope for us or our family's future together. Yep. And it's fair to say the next few years were very difficult for our family. So what, what help did you finally find? In early this year, 2023, I agreed to a suggestion from my older brother to attend a Gamblers Anonymous meeting. I had no idea what this was or what it would involve. Upon arriving at the meeting, I was greeted by a couple of guys who made me feel welcome. They told me it takes a lot of courage to walk through the door to one of these meetings for the first time. This made me feel at ease uh, and the meeting commenced a few minutes later. As I listened to a few of their stories, I came to a realisation that they were just like me. It made me feel connected to them and gave me the courage to say a few words the first night. So I told the room, I believe I'm a very ordinary human being that I'm not just a compulsive gambler, even worse, I'm a compulsive liar. Gambling has a hold of me and I don't believe it will ever let me go. This was rather emotional, obviously, and at this point I was recalling the countless people I'd lied to and, and hurt, and particularly my family. Uh, I felt regret, shame, despair. For this reason, I couldn't speak for very long and sat back down to listen to the remaining stories from the other members. After the meeting, a guy asked me to please come back the next week to give GA 90 days and just take it one day at a time. I had no idea what he meant by these words. I turned up seven days later and again the next week. And after about four or five weeks, I started thinking and feeling very differently. As time passed, I've been able to open up and convey aspects of my story to the GA meetings which has gradually given me a feeling of control over my gambling. It's now been 160 days since that first meeting, and I can thankfully say I haven't gambled in that time. More importantly, I'm not thinking about gambling, which is a massive change, as prior to attending GA, gambling was in the forefront of my thoughts every day from the moment I woke up until I slept at night time. Yeah. So do you want to talk about that that, that feeling about not thinking about gambling, that yeah. the, the sort of the freedom that gives you? Yeah, so it, it's the best way I can explain it is that um, a fog has lifted from inside my head yeah. that allows me to think clearly, logically, and understand why I don't need to gamble anymore. Yeah, that's a good feeling. So 
how's that affected your, I guess, primarily your your relationship with your wife and family, and then uh, with your work? Yeah. So it's allowed me to be honest and fully engaged with my family every day. I've been given an opportunity to try and make amends to them for the past. And when I go to work, instead of thinking I might gamble in the middle of the day, I might gamble after work, I'm now thinking 100% about what I'm doing at work. So I'm actually focusing on, on my job a million times better than I ever have before. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? Once you, once you start concentrating, yeah, how much better you do. Yeah. yeah. So, is your wife relaxed with you now? Does she trust you? Because building trust is often a, a a difficult path. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So she's quite a unique woman. So she has the ability to see things and people for who they are now, and and not hold what's happened in the past against them, and that's that's everyone. So with me, it's a, it's a totally different situation, obviously, but she's been able to, over the past five months since, since the GA meeting started, she's been able to see the change, and she came to a meeting a few weeks ago to meet the other members and, and see, talk to them and, and see... Um, exactly what's been going on because I've been I've been talking to her regularly about the meetings and um, she found that quite enlightening and I think that has helped the level of trust as well. Um, I don't think I'll ever get it back um, for what's happened before but what the guys always say is try not to dwell on the past because what it'll do is it'll just hold you back from from what you can achieve now. So while it's there and and I acknowledge it, I'm trying to focus on the positives, which is what I can do now for my family. Yeah, yeah. I've heard somebody explain that you know, re-establishing trust is like building a road out of pebbles. Yeah. It's just one pebble at a time yeah. and eventually the, it comes back. So um, what about your kids? Um, ha- has it changed your ability to be a family person? Yeah, it has. I, I find I'm more engaged with them every day. I, I notice the little things they're doing, and I'm uh, I'm more present in each moment with them. I've always had an interest in what they do, but I've found that's that's at a whole different level now. I'm I'm fully engaged, and and it's um, it's I can see the response from them is very different too. They're they're understanding that something's different. Uh, they probably don't know exactly what it is. I've talked to them all about the GA meetings and and why I'm doing them and, and what's happened in the past and and my journey. And I haven't touched on everything because I, I don't want to overwhelm them. But as yeah. time goes on, I hope to give them a clearer picture of, of, of more detail. At the moment, they just know the general picture and, and that's enough for them to understand why I'm going to the meetings every Monday night and the fact that it's when I come home and, and they talk to me and they say, how'd your meeting go, Dad? You know, it's a nice feeling. It really is. Yeah. So it's it's good to involve them in in the recovery process, I believe. Mm. Yeah. So talking about meetings, then, um, how would you sort of describe your friendships in GA? Um, I it's very hard to explain, but right from day one, when I when I spoke to the guys the very first meeting, I felt like at least four or five of them. I knew them, Mm. but I'd never met them before. So I came home and I said to my partner, I don't know what it is. They they just seem like people I've I've met before. I I, I can't explain it. So when she went to the meeting a few weeks ago, she said, I know exactly what you mean because they're just like you. That's what it is. So I I think the thing is it's the fact that they understand you, whereas other people don't, that you've... Yeah, other other people have got no chance of understanding you because they just don't understand why you do it. Whereas, right. you know, members of fellowships understand why you did it. You yeah. did it because you had to do it. Yeah. That there wasn't any choice. You, you know, it was beyond your control. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm. So, do you want to talk a bit about you know um, meetings and the importance of you know, sponsorship and service and things like that? Absolutely. So, I 
I performed the service of chairing the meeting two weeks ago for the first time, and I found that experience um, extraordinarily beneficial because the whole room was focused on my, myself kind of helping them through the one-hour session, and I felt responsible for everything that happened in that one hour, and it was a feeling of, of giving back to what they'd given me for 150-odd days. Mm-hmm. So it, um, it couldn't have been any more... The feeling afterwards was just just exhilarating it was it was a great feeling and 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 the 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 guys came up and said well done even though i i kind of fumbled my my way through the paperwork and what have you because i had no idea how it all worked i got to the end of the meeting okay and and i said you know a bit of unprofessional work there from myself but hopefully it it came out okay everyone and they said yes it was just tremendous it's sometimes good to be yourself i suppose yeah that's right yeah and that's the thing that everybody there wants you to be a success. Yeah. Nobody's ho- nobody's hoping you're going to fail. <laughs> no. No. Yeah, that's good. Okay. Uh, well, that's about all we've got time for today. So I'd like to thank Jared for sharing his gambling recovery story with us and talking about his involvement with Gamblers Anonymous has helped in his recovery. Thank you. Thanks, Bill. Appreciate that. No worries. If anybody would like to find out more about Gamblers Anonymous, uh, then you can find them in Victoria on. 0396966108 or go online at gaaustralia.org.au for more information on recovery from compulsive gambling. Coming up next, we have Bellamoir, The Spirit of War, hosted by Uncle Tell Jim Choco Edwards. Join Uncle Choco in the spirit of War on a journey of belonging and movement through sing-alongs and yarns. Uh, thanks for listening. Stay safe and stay tuned now for more Radical Radio on 3CR. And to take us out, we have Murundi River by Alex D. Smith, uh, also courtesy of Australian Music Radio Airplay Project.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Uh, logging operation. Any person found within this coop is offending. Can they please leave? You're allowed no closer than the bridge down the track there. Any person that's found in the coop will be arrested and charged. <laughs> I direct that you all leave now. Gecko's turning 30 and we're having a party. The Goongra Environment Centre has been fighting to protect East Gippsland's forest since 1993 and we want a party with you. There'll be music, performances, food, drink, old friends and new friends. What better way to celebrate the end of native forest logging in Victoria? From December 1st to the 3rd in Goongra, East Gippsland. To find out more, go to gecko.org.au. Gecko, 30 years fighting for forests. Get down to the party. Celebrate with us. A 3CR supporter.